Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. My guests for this episode are Jessica B. Davenport and Biko Mandela Gray. Jessica Davenport is a doctoral student in the Department of Religion at Rice University, researching Black religion, aesthetics, and visual culture. She also has an MDiv from the Candler School of Theology. Jessica is the associate director and editor-at-large at Project Curate, a Houston-based organization that focuses on issues at the intersections of religion, race, and social equity. Biko Mandela Gray is assistant professor of religion at Syracuse University. His research interests are race, religion, philosophy of religion, and social justice. He's currently working on a book on Black Lives Matter and religion. I sat down with Jessica and Biko at the Glen Workshop in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where they led a seminar called Choosing Creation, the Art of Blackness and the Blackness of Art. They talked to me about how black theology, and especially what is known as womanist theology, has always reached beyond traditional liturgical materials to music, art, dance, and literature to create and express the distinctive experience of Black Christianity. We talked about how Black people have always produced creative works of theology that must be seriously considered within the mainstream Christian tradition if we are to dismantle white supremacy. Many times when I've talked to other, mostly white, mostly North American artists of faith, we've expressed how we're drawn to certain liturgical forms of worship because they involve the body. But the body is usually drawn into prescribed forms, standing, sitting, kneeling, bowing, moving the hands in the sign of the cross, or even moving fingers along beads. I was struck by Jessica's and Biko's descriptions of worship in their historically black churches as completely different experiences of embodiment. Black churches have often been the only place it's safe to live fully and freely in a black body, to celebrate the black body as an instrument through which God moves. I spoke to Jessica and Biko just days before the death of writer Toni Morrison. The title of this episode comes from one of Biko's favorite quotes from her novel, Beloved. In this here place, we flesh. Flesh that weeps, laughs. Flesh that dances on bare feet and grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder they do not love your flesh. They despise it. We talked about art that explores what it means to flesh, to worship, to work, to live in a black body. I was brought up Kojic, Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal. And one of the things that sort of stuck with me the whole time was the movement of the spirit. And so this kind of collective um, ecstasy, this collective release that I, even as a kid, knew there was something to that. Went to high school and long and the short heard this sort of like old guy with this weird hairstyle that he talked beautifully. And his name was Cornell West. And I said, um, I said, oh, I, he's doing something that I'm really, really interested in doing. But still thought I was going to be a lawyer when I went to college. Long and the short, ended up studying liberation theology in undergrad and realized that theology could do a kind of political critique that extended beyond questions of heaven or hell, questions of personal salvation, questions of church branding or church expansion. This was about this God that I had met in undergrad was a God that was called to the poor. And then I, then I met James Cone in Divinity School, and I said, you know, there's something to this. And, and at that point, I started, like, raising other questions about blackness and theology. And, and, I, and I realized as I got into graduate school 
that I no longer sort of harbored some of the normative commitments of the Christian theological faith, but that Kojic boy was still in me. And But what I mean by that is, is that there is still something, and Jessica can attest to this, when we are together as when it's a group of us who are collective friends together, there are some times where things move us, where certain songs will take us in. And that's still that notion of a collective release, of a collective effervescence has continued to sustain me. The study of theology, I'm not quite... I, I do it because I have to. <laughs> but but what I'm always consistently um, interested in when I turn to theological discussions is how does black and how do black and womanist theologies disrupt certain normative theological commitments, and how do they allow for us to think about the political in different ways? And uh, and so womanist theology actually took me to the world of literature. I read I read The Color Purple um, in Divinity School and realized that black women's writings could do incredible amounts of work. And so I was like, this is fascinating. And then read Beloved for the, for the second time, but actually for the first time in graduate school. I'd read it before, but didn't know what I was doing. And I started to realize that an author who takes their word seriously is an artist. And Toni Morrison has always been that artist for me. And so just recently, over the past few years, talking both with Jessica and also talking with Lenicia Rostensley, who's also here, I began realizing how art opens up different worlds. How initially for me it was a critique, and, and so that brought in that liberationist the, theological tradition, but how it also starts to open up different modes of, of, of release, and that brought in the Kojic piece for me. Um, so both the, so my, my study of art, and I'm still relatively new to this, my interest in art comes from me being a little Kojic boy and also being in certain ways uh, um, recovering liberation theologian at heart. Jessica? So I grew up I grew up Baptist in, in Arkansas. In addition to a really kind of vibrant worship life in terms of music, there was also, in thinking about it, a vibrant visual life in that church in the sense that there were images of, of, of Jesus around that really challenged, I think, white iconography in terms of the Christian tradition. And that was always around that church. And I remember seeing those images and um, they had a particular kind of power over me. No one ever really talked about it or discussed it, but it was really important for those images to reflect black people and black life. And so there were images of Jesus as black. There were images of Mary and, and, and Jesus, you know, together as black. And so that th these things got my, I think at a very young age, really piqued my curiosity around the, the sort of possibility that the visual offers. You know, the, the way that pe people come to things, or at least the way I come to things, is not necessarily sort of a linear thing, right? So so I can name that as a nodal point. But then after that, I mean, I, it, I probably, you know, lost interest and really didn't come back to this question of religion and art and faith until I got to seminary and um, was introduced to womanist theology, where, as Biko, you know, stated, there, what I have always loved about womanist theology is that they have always expanded the faith tradition beyond traditional liturgical materials. So beyond the Bible, beyond liturgical songs, and they took me, as Biko talked about, directly into literature. So I'm talking about women theologians like Katie Cannon, theologians like Teresa Fry Brown, like Emily Towns, who are always saying black people are producing this creative cultural production that needs to be taken up seriously within the Christian tradition. And so 
looking at people like Dr. Cannon and reading the, you know, the work that she did on this study of Zora Neale Hurston and the study of Alice Walker. And I was really taken by that. And I think as probably like a kind of closeted writer myself, mm-hmm. like wannabe, you know, um, writing some literature, I really, I loved, I loved that work. But then sort of, again, coming back to, it's a circular kind of coming back to this piece about the visual and how that was always sort of a part of my my thinking and my curiosity from a young age, it was how can I extend this conversation around Black creative culture production beyond the literary, beyond the verbal, to perhaps the visual, right? What does that have to say to us about how Black people make their meaning in the world? Mm. What are the ways in which the visual gives us access to a part of that faith life, mm-hmm. that literature, that the Bible, that the written tradition may not. I'm wondering what that has to do with embodiment. You, mm-hmm. right? And I know that you both work on embodiment. Mm-hmm. If you could help our listeners wrap their heads around the importance of thinking about embodiment mm-hmm. from a black perspective mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of religion and art. You know, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. I think that Christianity in general has lots of like hangups about the body, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It wants to make all of these distinctions, the Kantian, the Cartesian <laughs> distinction between, you know, the mind, the body, and mm-hmm. um, and that the body is something that has to be brought into, you know, needs to be disciplined, right, mm-hmm. by the spirit because mm-hmm. it is the wayward thing that we need to kind of bring into control. Black religion has its own. Mm-hmm theological thinking, like it too perpetuates those kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, black religion has always and forever been about a celebration and a restoration of black bodies. It doesn't get away from that in the sense that historically, um, in the context of the United States, there has been unspeakable violence Mm -hmm. against black bodies Mm -hmm. um, that continues to happen even today. Black Christianity, black theology, womanist theology mm-hmm. are forthrightly dealing with these kinds of things. D- even black traditions, right? So mm-hmm. when we think about, you know, getting happy mm-hmm. and getting caught up in mm-hmm. the spirit mm-hmm. in the black church, that is an explicit, it happens through the body. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about a kind of exuberance, that happens through the body, the foot stomp, the shouting, the movement, the swaying, the hooping, that is a bodily engagement that is, that is central to our faith. The body is just so central in how we understand how God shows up in our lives. And this claim that when we enter this church space, our bodies are, are made anew. There is not even a new, they, they have, they suddenly, like, separate from the violence and the racism that we face in everyday life, when I set foot into this church, my body is of, of value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and my, it is God shows up to me in and through my body. Mm-hmm. I express my faith tradition in my, um, through the way that I dress, my aesthetic, mm-hmm. right, says something about my faith. It says something about class too, but that's a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, but right, I mean, it is, I'm, I'm showing up with my, with my good, with my, like my Sunday mm-hmm. best. And I express that in my body. That's not just with words. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a bodily. So I think in getting at what, what the black faith tradition, how it gets into this piece about the body in ways that mainstream white Christianity does not, 
it has always and forever been about sort of bodily expression. And yeah. No, I just I, I just wanted to echo, and this is something that's interesting across religious traditions, particularly black religious traditions. So we're brought up in, you know, black churches, black Christian churches, but even the nation of Islam is going to pay attention yeah. to sartorial decisions, right? How do you, how do we present ourselves bodily in the world in a way that reclaims the beauty of blackness, right? More Science Temple and these other lesser known groups yeah. um, articulate themselves through their sartorial decisions. And and I I kind of want to circle back to like Jessica's point. One of the things is, is that the body is also the conduit for sociality, right? So when we I speak for myself, you go to church and the music is good, right? And that one person starts shouting and then the whole church erupts. And, 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 you know, we leave there and then we say, you know, man, spirit was was moving, right? But, but it was this one person's flesh that opens up the possibility for a different kind of social. Mm-hmm. One that is, that is, that you're right, runs with, with complete disregard for the social violence that is waiting mm-hmm. for us as we leave, mm-hmm. right? And this one person mm-hmm. could be the preacher. More than often, more often than not, in Kojic churches, it's not. It's a group of women called yep. the Motherboard yep. who are singing um, without without instruments and yep. singing hymns. And so you see these kinds of moves where the body becomes celebrated as an, an opportunity to say, like, here in this here place, like, we together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We love each other in this space, right? And this often runs contrary to the theology that gets preached from the very pulpit yep. that knows That's it, right? right. So That's it's right. fascinating. Right. The, the theology says one thing, but mm-hmm. but practice. I mean, you you go to a black church space and just hear a yes hymn from a Kojic, and, and, <laughs> and you'll know exactly what I'm talking. I can't yeah. fully express it, but it is that it is that the body becomes a space for that, mm-hmm. and the body is celebrated for that, and the body is is understood as. The instrument, as a Sean Crowley would say, the instrument through which God moves. And so instead of running away from that, you get, you you can see this in black black artistic and visual culture all through, that the black body becomes celebrated. concern with embodiment in black religion, at least for me, is not so much with necessarily how God shows up through black bodies, Um, even though I think that's a part of where that can go. Um, I suppose I'm just more interested in how black folks are making meaning in the world through their bodies, if that makes any sense. So that's not necessarily about, you know, a kind of transcendent figure that is working through the body but right it that is, is somehow redeeming the body yeah 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 outside exactly of the value of the body itself mm. exactly so i'm i'm interested in the body itself the inherent right the just the, right the material mm-hmm. of it what we do with it the pleasure it offers the grief it offers you know um where it takes us what does that say about how people black folks in particular are making meaning mm. in the world. Be that putting them in touch with the higher power, mm-hmm. putting them in touch with other people, mm-hmm. putting them in touch with themselves, mm-hmm. 
that's and, the, and for me, those are fundamentally religious questions, mm-hmm. right? But it it it's not so predicated on uh, a transcendent figure, if that makes any sense. So I totally I think that kind of distinction between the incarnation and embodiment is probably where where I see it. The only thing that I would add here is that for me, it depends on what article comes before the word incarnation. So the incarnation renders it theological, right? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. The incarnation turns it into a Christological doctrine, and so in that regard, as fantastic as that is, and as important as that is for many of us who identify with the Christian faith to know that God has went through what we've went through, Mm. right? That's fantastic. There's also other forms of incarnation. I'm going to say it again just because it was expressed on my mind. Toni Morrison Mm -hmm. has this scene in Beloved, you know, and we just, I guess she's just on her mind all day. She has a scene in Beloved where Baby Shugs, an unlettered preacher, a black woman who had escaped from the violence of enslavement, shows up in the clearing, calls her community together, and she has this just, this line, here in this here place, we flesh. That's what she says. Here in this here place, we flesh. But Baby Shugs doesn't. Uh, Baby Shugs doesn't say we are flesh. She doesn't use mm-hmm. a sort of like the verb to be. Yeah. So flesh becomes a verb in that moment. Here yeah. in this here place, we flesh. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? As in mm-hmm. we flesh existence out. As in we, like yeah. we flesh out sociality. We flesh out these things. And so this is a different kind of incarnation that is really, really, really spot on with what Jessica said earlier that. It's interested in what bodies can do, right? And what pleasures they might give, as you said, and what how they might receive and even give out grief, depending mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, it, it turns the focus away from a, a vertical transcendent relationship mm-hmm. and see sacrality in in the social. It doesn't mean that God isn't present. It means that now God is refigured right, as... Right. If that's how you want to go, and it may not mean sometimes yeah. it does mean God is yeah, just yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it honestly depends. But you know, the question here is for baby shows anyway, and I guess for me too is what does it mean to flesh? The theme for the 2019 Glenn workshop was as iron sharpens iron promise and peril of friendship. And many of the talks the resident artists and scholars gave throughout the week focused on friendship and rivalry among artistic communities. Biko spoke about the relationship between Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat and the history of white patronage of black art. Jessica's lecture focused on historic images of black people with the white families who enslaved them, and later art photography of black women in relationship with each other. You can listen to these talks on the Image website, and we explore both those topics in the final segment of the interview. Biko and Jessica also spoke frankly with me about their hesitancy to discuss friendship at all in a predominantly white space. So this year's theme of the Glen... (laughs) You got this one. No, 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 no. no, no, no. We roughly friendship in the art world, yeah. right? The importance of both friendship and rivalry, mm-hmm. the complications of friendship and rivalry. So when you were invited to come and you were told that was the theme, I'm guessing, what was the first thing that came to your mind? No, well, the first thing that came to mind to me was this is a trope that has been tried, and it's a trope that, if I can be frank with you, gets a bit tiring. Yeah. I'll just say it without the caveats. It is a trope that white liberals and progressives turn to incredibly quickly to emotionally ameliorate themselves from certain kinds of structural critiques of their own complicity in white supremacy, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, the first move, and it's it, not only is this the first move, it's often the only move, and Jay, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the first, mm-hmm. let's be friends. 
<laughs> and that's and, the work right? Right. For, a lot of, for a lot of right. people. So I've invited you to the Thanksgiving table, and now justice is all of a sudden in the world, right? Here we are. And we know that's not true, mm-hmm. right? So the, you know, or is it in the case of we can speak briefly about Warhol and Basquiat? Oh, I made you Basquiat. Oh, like mm-hmm. I know I was introduced to you by somebody else, but girl, you wasn't. You was popping, but you wasn't really popping until we started collaborating on stuff, right? And so, like, so for, my, for, for me, I heard this notion of friendship. And, you know, my question is, are you talking about friendship in the way that, and I, I won't go into a whole bunch of but in the way that Jessica and I are friends, that is both accountable in as much as it is joyous? Is, are you talking about a kind of friendship that is rigorous in its ability to speak the truth to one another? Or are you talking about the platitude of friendship? The mm-hmm. ability to say we are friends, and that means your Facebook friends, right? You've liked a right. couple of posts, or you've mm-hmm. you've befriended someone, you know, through the through the lens of civility. We can be, in other words, does being friends mean being friendly, or does it mean being friends? And and it seems to me that the notion of friendship is too often collapsed into being friendly. Mm-hmm. When you know it is just your desire to have, you know coffee and proximity mm. to uh-huh. people of difference, mm-hmm. but not willing to do anything to shift the power structure that really causes inequity, right? And and really the thing for me, I think in terms of friendship, I love the idea of friendship and I can go to town, right? Just, but if we're concerned with ideas around, you know, race, it just has often been been used again in terms of appealing to platitudes in a way in which people are just not interested in having to really deal with this inequity. The thing is, I don't really need to be friends with white people in order to work with them. I don't around justice issues. I, I really, I do not need to be, we do not need to go to coffee and I don't need to know about your family in order to join with you and for us to be co-conspirators in trying to right the wrongs of what's been happening. I just need someone who has a common interest with me and is willing to do whatever they can in the sphere of influence that they have to do that work. And if we can meet there and do that work together, friendship is not, I mean, you know, that's what happens. That's fine. That's great. But I'm really interested in the shift in the power structure. Mm. And I think white folks are key to that work. Mm. I can't really do that work. I think white folks really have to have to lead the charge. And that doesn't require me to be buddies with folks. So it is also, it can be, it can be spoken to in terms of like coalition building, because what I've noticed, and for this is as relates to black men in relation to black women, and then also white people in relation to black folks is a significant amount of immaturity mm. that shows up as a hypersensitivity to critique, mm-hmm. right? Don't say nothing bad about me because I can't take, I can't take it, right? Not all black men are, are doing this horrible thing, right? Or, or not all white folks are, are racist. And so it, you find yourself dealing with, having to, to operate with folks in the same way you might have to deal with, unfortunately, a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. And some of us are long-suffering to do that. My middle name is Mandela. I'm thankful for the long-suffering he did. <laughs> But my first name is Biko. <laughs> there's only, you know, you know, it's, it's, there's only so much, right? Right. And so, and, but I say yeah. that to say that some of us are long suffering to do that. But but others of us are like, look, like if you can't be mature enough to come to a place, mm-hmm. 
and be in relation with us and say, look, I'm neither going to cry nor am I going to construct an apologetic, but I am going to let you know where I stand on things. You've demonstrated sufficient maturity for a kind of coalition Mm -hmm, building mm -hmm. that I'm interested in at that point. Mm -hmm. Because that means we're all on the same. Like now, because now we're all being clear about what the stakes are for all of us. Right. And that means that we might agree on some places and not agree on others. So I say all of that to say that the maturity piece is is good. And honestly, it doesn't even take that long. It just takes a certain kind of self-introspection to say like, I don't, I, I, if someone says I'm racist or in the case of me, I'm sexist, you sit there and you, you, you say, okay, all right, now here, now here's where I got to make some adjustments. And also how can, how can I like, how can I get in the trenches with you in a very real way? Not, oh my God, woe is me or I'm not sexist, but to say, here's where I'm clearly struggling and here, I, here's where, here's where I'm actually thinking that I can do some things. Here's what's at stake for me in this relationship. Um, so I, I think maturity is, is central to that kind of work, um, mm-hmm. especially to the work of accountability. One of the big things about being accountable is it's one thing to hold someone accountable, and that collapses into call-out culture mm-hmm. in many different in many different difficult spaces. Mm-hmm. But it collapses into call-out culture because the folks being called out don't want to be called out. the ways in which racism and white supremacy are at work. It's not necessarily, at least for me, I think Biko has particular uh, interest in the art world, in terms of his lecture in the art world. In terms of community really versus in, yeah. like actual works of art. Yeah, so I'm mm-hmm. interested in the works of art. And so how that, there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so I have a particular interest in, in photography and how black folks are represented in photography, how black folks create photography, whatever, or create photographs. With that question... I'm thinking about, you know, 19th century Mm. photographs of white families Mm. that include black women who worked as nursemaids or these 19th century daguerreotypes that show black women surrounded by the white children that they care for or working in proximity to certain families. And not even 19th century, not even 20th century, but there are some 21st century contemporary artists who even include images like that. Mm-hmm. And so what those images suggest to me is that, you know, we like to talk about mm-hmm. how racism is constituted by separation and exclusion mm-hmm. But racism and white supremacy also show up within certain attachments, certain intimate attachments. When black people are working in a part of the families of white people, there is a kind of intimacy there and an attachment where racism is obviously playing out. And I think these images that we see of black servants who are in relation to the white people who they work for attest to that, that this has not just been about exclusion, but they have been, you know, they're a part of these these families, mm-hmm. but even within this context of intimate life, white supremacy and racism still still plays out, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you, you point to, and you'll be talking about this mm-hmm. later in the week, right yeah. at the Glen, mm-hmm. yeah. artists who are depicting in particular, black women's relationships in more yeah 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 creative I mean, or expansive ways. Yeah, so so here I'm going to be talking. I have a real interest in black women's relationships with one with one another and the possibilities that that sort of leads to. And so I'll be turning um, to the work of artists and photographers like Kira Mae Weems, mm-hmm. 
Lorna Simpson, um, a young artist, Naima Green. And these women, you know, distinct from the ways that black women have been, that their intimate life has been sort of defined by their servitude to white people. These contemporary black artists are showing black women in relationship to each other that bring about lots of different questions about how we see black women, how black women see one another in Mm -hmm. really complex ways that bring about certain questions about where black women belong, Mm -hmm. that disrupt ideas around, speaking of bodies, black bodies and black women's bodies only being uh, only belonging in spaces of like urban spaces Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but these women are are putting black women in these rural areas right and 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 picturing you know contemporary black women who seem to be deeply a part of the land right troubling ideas of where black people belong and where their space is also troubling ideas around friendship and what's possible in terms of friendship and also the hierarchies of relationships. Mm -hmm. So Lorna Simpson has some incredible work where she gets us to think, at least in my mind, about how black women's intimacy happens sometimes in romantic relationships, but it also happens with with one another, Mm -hmm. right? And and what it does is it sort of takes... um, romantic relationships and specifically heterosexual romantic relationships off the pedestal that we put it on, mm-hmm. right? And says that there are other relationships, other attachments where we find deep connection. Mm-hmm. I would even say, venture to say, and we're going to break this, break this mm-hmm. down. This mm-hmm. is probably going to so- sound a little evocative, but erotic connection mm-hmm. that is not necessarily sexual, right? Mm-hmm. So it just runs the gamut of relationships and how they are configured that takes us out of white heterosexual nuclear family and that, you know, you marry someone and that one person is supposed to give you every emotional need that you ever have, mm-hmm. right? Black women are challenging that in ways and saying, No, I mean, like, yeah, we're involved in relationships with men, but then there's also these deep friendships where some of that work also happens, too. I'm reading Warhol's biography, and then I'm doing research on their relationship. And all of the retrospective work on Warhol and Basquiat says that they were friends, right? Mm -hmm. That they are good friends, that they love... I'm talking about that this is a bromance that is widely calculated and just... Bromance is the word. Yeah. It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's you know... art bromance. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, yeah. And so, and so you know, I'm like, I'm like, okay, but I did know, you know, so at some point, so I knew that Basquiat wasn't, wasn't happy with what was going down. So I started doing my homework. I started reading. And, you know, a lot of people start blaming Basquiat, essentially, um, for Warhol, right? So for Warhol's like decline in certain ways, like Basquiat's the the hyper emotional one. Basquiat's the one who comes to Warhol and tries to, you know, be in the factory and in, in the, you know, in the he, Basquiat's the one who's starting this relationship and also getting it going and giving. I mean, it, it, Warhol, I mean Basquiat is both the engine of, of success and also a ticket to, in certain parts, the dullness of Warhol's creativity. Right? Everything's on Basquiat. So I started reading. And there's this quote from Jean-Michel Basquiat where he says, I think I influenced Andy more than he influenced me. Mm-hmm. And then there are, there are other moments where you start to see cracks in this, this idea of Warhol being this affectively neutral person who's being deeply affected by this reckless black boy who's addicted to drugs. 
So we see Warhol in certain narratives as trying to save Basquiat from his own, you know, addictive personality. And so we think of oh, their friends there. And then you start to realize, well, what Warhol is dealing with in 81 is a decline in his career. And Basquiat shows up and revives him. So instead of Basquiat needing Warhol, you start to see Warhol really needing Basquiat. Basquiat gets in with young folks. And the next thing you know, Warhol becomes obsessed with Basquiat. Now he's just taking pictures of him all the time, mm. getting up in the morning, shaving. I'm going to show a couple of images that are even more intimate than that, getting his nails done, right? Mm -hmm. There's images just, I mean, Warhol cannot get enough of this dude. And so what you're seeing over here, what you're seeing on one hand is like, oh, the, the art world is saying that they're good friends, but really it's Basquiat who's messing things up. And when you read the narrative, you're seeing they may have been good friends, but Warhol was getting a lot, a lot out of this relationship. Mm-hmm. There was nothing off limits to Warhol for Basquiat. And so the question becomes, how do you deal with the friendship where for one person there is nothing off limits and for the other person, everything is off limits, mm -hmm. right? So Basquiat doesn't get access to Warhol's emotional life. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, uh, yeah, and this mm -hmm. calls back to what we were talking about earlier about accountability, yeah. maturity, mm -hmm. trust, yeah. right. and patronage. Yeah. Absolutely right, right. Absolutely. So, so, and this is, and so what I suggest, you know, is that Warhol's not alone in this. Number one, I suggest Basquiat specific. Keith Haring is influenced by graffiti. Mm -hmm. He's a contemporary artist, but him and Warhol and, ba Warhol and Haring are... It ain't the same, right? right. Basquiat. The other thing I say is that you have to think of the history of white patrons of black art as well. Carl right. Van Vecten during the Harlem Renaissance, right? Mm -hmm. Bill Arnett in, in Georgia, who's actually one of Thornton, Deals, uh, Thornton Dial's biggest patron. I mean, even Dana, Sh Dana, Dana Schutz, who is not a patron, but decides that Emmett Till is inspiring to her mm -hmm. and does a piece that raises considerable questions about who gets access to, to representing black death. In the same way that that, Basquiat, that nothing of Basquiat is off-limits for Warhol, Schutz raises the question of what can be off-limits for the white artist, right? And these are questions that I see happening through the prism of friendship. So, so for me, <laughs> folks who say, you know, folks want to say Warhol and Basquiat are friends, and I'm saying they may have loved each other deeply, right. but what does it mean when a friendship is so tainted by almost an absolute access to someone's I mean even the piss paintings right I mean mm -hmm. there's nothing off limits right. you know what I'm saying like nothing what does it mean that they're friends and the only person who 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 gets full access is Warhol and we can't attribute it to his like social awkwardness he can't talk to nobody so he's behind the camera all the time no we have to be able to say like is friendship possible? It, is it exactly? And what are the pitfalls and promises of such a friendship? Right. I'm not saying that they didn't love each other. I'm not saying they weren't friends. I'm just saying that when we think about the art world and patronage and questions of relationships between, you know, cross racial relationships, how do we begin to think about someone who is as big as Andy Warhol dealing with this this impressionable young man at the same time? And, and Basquiat's not a victim either. He makes good money out of this relationship. I want to be make that very clear. It is a, it's not it's not that. It's just Basquiat has this access right. to the depths of Andy Warhol mm -hmm. in the way that Warhol's photographing this guy in a jockstrap. Like, there's something right. about that, right? So, that's something that I'm sort of thinking through, and, and, and it's all being framed through this lens of friendship. They were close. Mm -hmm. They were close. They were close. And yet, we rarely see, we don't see images of Warhol in jockstraps being taken by 
by, by Jean de Sobotsky. Mm -hmm. so. I'm so fascinated by that whole topic. But he was a user, he was a serial user. Yeah, absolutely. And so I find this claim mm -hmm. that... Oh, they're friends. That suddenly oh, Basquiat friends. is the one who's taking advantage when he, yeah. has, a, he has a long life history of, of throwing away young men and young women. <laughs> But no, there's there, also, yeah. certainly a racial yeah. factor comes into yeah. this idea of Basquiat as yeah. the young, drugged yeah. right. black man who brings about right. Warhol's decline and instead just, of the other way around. Yeah, and I'm sure we're wrapping it. I just, it, for me, it's just interesting because Warhol is also seeing himself as he. I don't know if there's a correlation, but at the same time, he has absolute access to Basquiat. He also thinks he's trying to save Basquiat, right? right? So here's this young black boy addicted to drugs, so stereotypical blackness that people are used to. Mm -hmm. And Warhol is initially afraid of him because of this, right? Won't mm -hmm. let him into the factory because he's, he's a drug addict, mm -hmm. right? But then you realize he's brilliant, and so now you think your pen, your penance mm -hmm. is to try to save him, to make him to make him whole. I'm doing the best I can. That's my friendship. Right. But what's the cost? Mm -hmm. What's the cost? Mm -hmm. Oh, now you get to you now you get to. You know, screen print me on a on a piece of rusted paint and have someone piss over it, right? Like, how do right. you begin to think about what is the cost yeah. of your rehabilitation, mm -hmm. of your friendship? Is there a piss painting of Basquiat? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, listener, you can't see my face. I didn't. I don't think I knew that. He, that's no, troubling to yeah. say the least. <laughs> so Basquiat's, wow. Basquiat's urine is not the one that's used. It's actually what it is is a, is a piss painting that was already done, and and Warhol and Basquiat were cool at the time. And so over the piss painting, he just screen prints Basquiat's face. Wow. So there's a yeah, there's a piss painting of Basquiat. That's um, disturbing. <laughs> when I tell you nothing was off limits for yeah. Warhol, there's nothing that's off limits for him. You've been listening to The Image Podcast, produced by Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. For more information on the Glenn Workshop and to subscribe to the print journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There you also will learn about all previous episodes of this podcast and find our show notes and links to resources discussed in the interview. You can also access back issues of the journal through the Image Archive. We'll be back in two weeks with further exploration of art, faith, and mystery.